the sixth episode of the Circular Planet podcast, in which we will talk about the strategies that can help accelerate the move to a circular economy. But first, let's briefly recap the previous episode, in which we discussed the scientific and technological advances that will help us adopt the circular economy. We looked at some super cool innovations in sectors like fashion, energy, and electronics, which help us designing out our waste and pollution, keeping items in use, and regenerating nature. Companies creating these technologies that advance the circular economy showcase that we have what it takes to adopt the circular economy. But most of us have probably not seen these innovations and ideas we discussed in previous episodes too much in our own lives. And when we do, it's surprising to us. So in this episode, we'll be focusing on what can be done to realize the vision of a circular economy so that these innovations will become the norm. aspects of the circular economy may sound challenging to implement, or even too good to be true. So let's discuss the existing barriers to circularity, so we can get an idea of how they can be overcome. We previously discussed the role of consumers in setting the circular economy in motion, mainly buying from companies that employ circular practices. But let's say that a company is interested in becoming more circular. Well, they for sure are already pioneers because currently the world is only 8.6% circular, because the linear model is structurally locked into most production processes. Also, as we learned in our last episode, many circular companies are startups, which adds to the enormous cost of getting their business off the ground, primarily due to economic, policy, and cultural barriers. The sustainable production cycle is more expensive, whether it is obtaining socially responsible, recycled, or high-tech materials, powering the entire manufacturing process with renewable energy, or taking on other circular approaches. The cost for these things may even exceed the financial resources of many smaller companies. It's not easy being green. When it comes to policies, uncertainty about ever-changing regulations and lack of market-wide standards due to circular practices being relatively new in the overall linear economy creates risk around profitability in the future for many small companies. Circular economy solutions can't always replace non-circular economy practices at the same price level. It is hard to predict how consumers will accept these new products, which adds to another layer of uncertainty for circular businesses. These barriers must be overcome for a sustainable and healthy world, but we can't just rely on companies or governments or consumers to do it all by themselves. Cooperation is critical for success. We know that companies pursuing circular economy opportunities often face financial barriers limiting further scale-up. But effective policy can create favorable conditions for businesses to adopt circular practices, and even create a blueprint for the transition of entire sectors towards a circular economy. To realize the vision of a circular global economy, we need universal circular economy policy goals agreed upon by businesses, consumers, and policymakers. Meaningful policies, such as those establishing standards that encourage high-quality design for goods and packaging, making them durable, reusable, repairable, recyclable, and compostable, can bring the circular economy into view for some businesses who aren't even thinking about it before, and possibly encourage collaboration for businesses in meeting these standards. Additionally, it makes it easier for consumers to have access to these products. Of course, this would need to come along with policies promoting fair competitive practices, which would benefit circular products. Such policies would help break down the economic barrier 
for circular products that make them more expensive than those that follow the linear approach. With the removal of this barrier, circular companies have more room and incentive to think of and use impressive new materials to make their products while remaining assured that there will not be as many financial challenges to their utilization. And this is already beginning to take effect. The EU recently introduced a policy that would create a framework for standards on quote, material efficiency that would establish future eco-design requirements on, amongst others, durability, repairability, and recyclability of products. I had the chance to speak with Emily Yates, who is a Smart City Program Director in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. From her perspective as a city official, Ms. Yates explained to me what the role of governments is in transitioning towards circularity. Government has a strict role of setting policy and supporting implementation. There are certain things that we cannot do within our bounds, but policy is our enabler. So we can set the policies that allow you to have access to the material, to make it easier to go through a process if it's incentivizing becoming more circular. And I think that the regulation really kind of sets the field goalposts for what you want to achieve, right? Without policy and regulation, you can kind of go off the rails. And so the city's saying, this is what our community needs. This is what our city needs. And here are the boundaries and you can operate within that space. So I think it's important to just create a, a solid movement to ensure that what we're doing is in the best interest of the people and the best interest of the planet. Meaningful policies, such as those establishing standards that encourage high quality design for goods and packaging making them durable, reusable, repairable, recyclable, and compostable can bring the circular economy into view for some businesses who weren't even thinking about it before and possibly encourage collaboration for businesses in meeting these standards. Additionally, it makes it easier for consumers to have access to these products. Of course, this would need to come along with policies promoting fair competitive practices, which would benefit circular products. Such policies would help break down the economic barrier for circular products that make them more expensive than those that follow the linear approach. With the removal of this barrier, circular companies have more room and incentive to think of and use impressive new materials to make their products while remaining assured that there will not be as many financial challenges to their utilization. And this is already beginning to take effect. The EU recently introduced a policy that would create a framework for standards on quote, material efficiency that would establish future eco-design requirements on, amongst others, durability, repairability, and recyclability of products. Also, because many consumers are not aware of the circular economy and its principles and practices, establishing policies that enable the transparent sharing of information regarding the sustainability of products to consumers, which can be done through product labels and tags, and digital product material passports, could be beneficial to increasing transparency and raising awareness around sustainability and the circular economy. As consumers, we should seek out products that have this sort of transparency about the social and environmental impacts of the product at each stage of its life. Of course, getting all the information to conduct a life cycle assessment of a product takes a lot of efforts and costs. So establishing norms that can make it easier for businesses to do this is important because sustainability is increasingly becoming an important criteria for consumers when they want to buy something. Nationally or internationally spanning certifications for design and sustainability for products could be that deciding factor for consumers. There are some certifications like this that exist already. One of the most prominent is the B Corp certification, 
which is a designation for businesses that have shown commitments to social and environmental sustainability. Of course, we know that the second pillar of a circular economy is keeping materials in use. So how can policy help facilitate this? Did you know that some circular economy solutions could be considered illegal under some legislation? A new definition of waste is seriously needed, because currently many places legislation classifies used items as waste, and this comes with regulations that define what can be done with the item after it is considered waste. A startling example was when a company was trying to collect disposed coffee cups and recycle the material to make new cups. But the government of the place where this happened said that since the material had already contained a beverage in it, it could not be used again as the same product. This particular example shows that food regulations could limit the possibility of reusing certain materials. And this was not a one-off occurrence. Miss Yates explained to me how in Philadelphia they deal with policies that did not align with circularity. Philadelphia recently worked with the, the Department of Public Health and uh, a local restaurant about the reuse of containers. So originally policy was set to keep our population safe, right? And so with reuse of containers that carry food, there's always concern around risk of health and cleanliness and whatnot. So we had a company come to the city and say, we want to use reusable containers. Our policy did not align with it. And so we worked with them to align the policy, make it easier for them and future businesses to to use reusable containers. Another instance would be in the construction and demolition waste, where we see a lot of uh, material go to the landfill, but it's also very valuable resources. There's a shortage of sand, there's a shortage of concrete. So if we can incentivize through policies, like if you use X percentage of reusable materials or recycled materials, then we will get your permit through quicker, or you'll get put in the fast lane for, for whatever. Also, the key to expanding the use of secondary materials and production processes is reforming waste regulations, which are basically what type of waste is meant for reuse and what can go to waste disposal sites. Currently, legislation primarily views waste as only waste, rather than a potential secondary resource. There are systems in place for certain types of waste to be recycled, like plastics, paper, and metals. For the circular economy, we need to expand beyond these categories and enable different streams of waste and recycled materials to get into production cycles. Similar systems should be put in place to help producers to trade a wider variety of their manufacturing byproducts to be put in use. One tool is a policy approach known as extended producer responsibility, where manufacturers and importers of products are held accountable for the environmental impacts of their products throughout the product's life cycle. As we know, this life cycle is primarily determined by design. So basically, this policy incentivizes companies to have circular design approach to avoid damaging, usually financial, responses from governments. Governments can also have a role to play in making secondary materials accessible because of the typical legislation that we just discussed. Although access to secondary resources is key to developing circular business models, it is not always easy for companies to find and secure the kinds of resources they need in sufficient amounts. We've all used Amazon, right? What if there could be an online marketplace like this, but for secondary materials? This is a new scheme that is being recommended to policymakers. These types of platforms could allow for secondary material suppliers and buyers to find each other easily. For example, a clothing company that wants to use recycled cotton in their jeans could find a supplier of recycled cotton on a platform and be able to connect with them to form a partnership. 
governments or even the private sector could step in to establish and maintain these types of platforms. Another significant way that the government can help alleviate some of these barriers is through circular procurement. Procurement is just a fancy term for obtaining that the government uses for buying things from companies. An example that you may have heard about was back at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic when the U.S. government bought ventilators to have enough supply for the growing number of sick patients due to COVID. According to a scholar interviewed for an article in the journal Resources, Conservation and Recycling, government procurement of circular products would stimulate the circular economy. And on the government side, circular procurement was also favorable because, according to the paper, some government programs are looking for new innovative ideas that would be beneficial to advance. And since governments spend billions or even hundreds of billions of dollars on procurement, there could potentially be a large market for circular products within that budget. Of course, more and more circular products could be acquired with more innovation. Circular procurement allows the government to actively participate in the circular economy itself, showing that fundamental idea of cooperation. There must also be a significant push for investing in the infrastructure needed to expand circular practices to keep items in use. South Korea, for example, introduced a mandatory food waste recycling program and a ban on food waste in landfills. The initiative successfully led to an impressive 95% of waste being recycled into compost, animal feed, biogas, or solid fuel. As more and more governments introduce policies that encourage recycling and reuse, as well as consumer awareness around sustainability that continues to grow, companies adopting circular business models will find themselves having a clear business advantage and will be encouraged to continue with what they're doing. Serving in Philadelphia city government, Ms. Yates sees the huge role and impacts of circular procurement. Utilizing the tools and levers that we have as a city to kind of direct the market, right? We saw with EVs as an example, we started to see all these cities piggybacking off of procurement opportunities. And it really drove the market of EVs in cities in terms of procurement for fleet. It dropped the price, it increased the demand. That was a really great way of seeing how city procurement can really in fact affect sustainability and how, how the market kind of pivots. My hope is that cities do the same thing with circularity. Governments also play a key role in advancing social sustainability. Through a project working with food insecure citizens, Ms. Yates' program meshed together social sustainability with environmental sustainability and circularity. We have food insecure Philadelphians that we are procuring food from a company in Brooklyn, shipping in 60,000 meals a day. They're in single use plastic. Can we do a more distributed model? So we're not trucking in 60,000 meals from Brooklyn, but instead we're maybe doing 10,000 meals from this neighborhood over here and 10,000 here. And the distance is three miles versus however many it is to New York, hundred miles. Can we do it in reusable containers? We're still seeing the impacts of global supply chains, right? We're seeing supply chain challenges. So could we procure regional food supply? Could we uh, use zero carbon or no carbon delivery services? So all of that, I mean, I kind of just listed out like a lot of impacts and granted, it's not gonna happen overnight, but that systems change, right? Is we start to really shift how we're thinking about where we're sourcing this. So the government's role here is really choosing wisely how to meet both social and environmental goals. And as we discussed, Circular procurement plays a big role in the influence governments have, but there's still room for improvement. It all starts with 
the city saying, I have $25 million of procurement power. How am I using this in a responsible way? And what's the best I can get for my community? And so that's my hope in the role for cities. We are not the ones who are really implementing it, right? Because it's going to be the businesses. It's going to kind of follow through on what's happening. But it all starts with the city saying, we want to have more power over how we spend our money and have more impact. And I think that that's really the critical part. There's other roles like setting policy, incentivizing. But I really think the procurement power is something that's going to need to go through a whole redo in terms of how cities think, think it through. So it can... On the business side, there are many different methods for collaboration. The World Economic Forum outlines several methods that companies can employ to collaborate on circularity. One that is probably the most important at large is the vertical network which is when companies that operate at different stages of the life cycle of a specific product collaborate and exchange knowledge with one another to make the overall life cycle of the product more sustainable. For example, with the plastic bottles, these players may come from the areas of resource extraction, plastic pollution, label making, distribution, and more. A vertical partnership is a more direct relationship between two or a few companies. We discussed this a bit with our clothing example in the third episode, where one company took scraps from the clothing production facilities and used them to create valuable products like home insulation. This example also illustrates the cross-sectoral collaboration approach, where different industries can work together to design that waste and pollution. Companies with different expertise can also come together to advance circularity in a horizontal partnership. For example, in the design phase, two shoe companies, Adidas and Allbirds, collaborated to design the most sustainable shoe. Adidas brings its scale and manufacturing capabilities to the table, while Alberts are the experts in sustainable materials and sourcing. And these are probably the two most essential ingredients to making truly sustainable products more widespread. Finally, as we know, some startups with innovative ideas for a circular economy may lack the financial resources to get their product to market. This is where the established, larger companies can step in to help bring the idea of these smaller companies to light. So, similar to the shoe example, the views of a small startup and the larger company's resources, like money and recognition and more, can come together to advance sustainable practices more quickly. We talked about companies as well as governments at large and their policies, what about on the smaller scale, in cities, where most of us live? How are cities relevant to the circular transition? Cities are absolutely critical to the success or failure of the circular economy. They generate about 85% of global GDP, or the money of the world, and in doing so, they consume about 70% of global resources, and 70% of all energy generated, and they emit 70% of all greenhouse gases, and generate 50% of all waste in the world. problems with cities because of how compact they are to attract businesses and consumers, which creates an enormous potential for adopting circular practices. Cities are also small enough to make quick decisions, building on their autonomous power to self-regulate and incentivize, but at the same time they are big enough to enable the establishment of new citywide circular practices and services and circular business models. Cities also have infrastructure, utilities, and services that could become more circular. What makes a city circular? A circular city conserves and reuses resources and products, 
cheers and increases the use of everything in it, and minimizes the resource consumption and waste in all forms. It's easy to say, but how is it done? Let's imagine what a circular city would look like. Again, the most important idea is that a circular city conserves and reuses resources and products, and minimizes resource consumption and waste. When you think about what the opposite of nature is, you probably think of a city. However, the circular economy aims to emulate natural processes. So just like with agriculture, cities can be designed to regenerate the surrounding environment. Let's start with what really defines a city, its infrastructure. Circular cities employ green infrastructure, which consists of planned networks of natural and semi-natural spaces in urban areas. They are strategically designed to solve problems in the city, like stormwater management, heat stress, air quality, and biodiversity. And green infrastructure isn't 100% plants. Rather, new and existing areas can be designed or redesigned to include things like urban trees, green roofs, and facades, well-constructed wetland habitats. And these green additions are a great help to buildings. With greening, roofs survive longer against harmful weathering and intense sunlight. The lifespan of conventional flat roofs can even be doubled with greening. As a city with a long tradition of greening roofs, Berlin has green roofs that are almost 100 years old. But a circular or smart city isn't everything that you just see with your eyes. As Ms. Yates explains, there are many things that cities do behind the scenes to ensure a better quality of life for citizens and environmental sustainability. Had that impact. The way we defined it in Philadelphia was a smart city is a city that innovatively applies tech and data to municipal challenges that allow it to more equitably and effectively deliver services to their citizens that ensure an improvement in the quality of life. In terms of circularity, tech enables circularity. A lot of the things that you're trying to achieve within circularity, even sustainability, are all going to be tech enabled and moving forward. We can take innovative things that we have and just think about that in a different way. You're innovating on the application that doesn't remove the typical kind of smart city tech of sensors and the shiny objects. In Smart City Philadelphia, we really worked hard to address the situations like spatial inequities through data. That takes AI and machine learning to analyze images that we have as a city and really kind of getting down to that microscale granularity of are there sidewalks? What are the conditions of the sidewalks? Are there curb cuts? Are there trees? All of those things that you experience in a built environment and affect the way you feel in that space. Let's look at some examples of cities that are aiming to become more circular. Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, with a population of over 1.3 million people, sends 2,200 tons of waste to the landfill every day. So, the city decided to focus on becoming more circular in two areas. First, it encourages businesses, the public, and other organizations to improve how they utilize various resources and products. They designed a program called La Ciudad Vieja Circular, supporting restaurant and food businesses in one neighborhood to reduce waste generation. Secondly, it focuses on reducing avoidable household waste by extending items' useful life through repair and maintenance, and by finding new users for repaired items. An interesting idea they explore is to support employment opportunities for people with repair skills or those who are interested in learning them. Another example is Cape Town in South Africa, which focuses on addressing business sustainability, in particular, industrial waste. Instead of being discarded, through a special initiative supported by the city, 
These resources become available as a new input for other businesses. Businesses receive training to help them understand their own waste streams and to identify unused or underutilized resources, such as energy, water, and human expertise. Then, the program helps find potential matches for those waste streams. By sharing resources, participating businesses are able to cut costs and increase profits, create new revenue streams, learn from experts, and come to operate more sustainably, which contributes to the circular economy. These sound awesome, and there are so many other examples. Would you want to live in the circular city? Are they the future? I certainly hope so. Finally, to finish off the podcast, let's review some policies that we, as consumers, should adopt for ourselves. Miss Yates talked a bit about what ordinary citizens in cities can do to help advance sustainability and circularity where they live. You know, I think there's a variety of things that can be done. I think if people are inclined to lean more towards the government side of things, they can reach out to their representatives in city government. So whether it's a sustainability director, it's somebody in sanitation and ask to have a meeting with them and learn more and say, you know, have you thought of this and and kind of just have a dialogue. City servants' task is to serve the community. So part of that is also talking to the community. Go to the environmental committees. Every city has council meetings that are focused on environment and achieving environmental targets. You know, familiarize yourself with your city's environmental targets. Is there a zero waste plan that you can kind of tap into and see if there's opportunities? I think it, it's finding what you're passionate about and really kind of seeing what's out there and then getting involved and not being afraid to have a voice. So let's do a final recap of what we can do. Firstly, it's important for businesses to become more sustainable, but we have huge spending power. So through what we decide to purchase, we can support those businesses advancing circularity from clothes to electronics to food. If we choose to buy companies that seek to design out waste and pollution, that will send a signal that circularity is what consumers want. So circularity is what will profit companies. Of course, this is not the perfect solution, because we just learned why circular products are almost always more expensive, which could make them inaccessible to many people. But we should try to be circular when we can in our purchasing. Second, we need to strive to keep our items in use. Though our initial inclination may be to throw an item out and just buy a new one, we should try to fight this habit and put in some extra effort to repair, resell, share, or do all those other R's with our items. Finally, if we have the chance, we should try to advocate for any policies that benefit the environment, as well as those that advance circularity, like the ones we discussed earlier. Joining organizations or groups that do this is a great way to get started. Overall, getting to the circular economy will not be easy, and there are so many different factors at play. But we should all try to do what we can to take a stand. And of course, education is the first step. So thank you so much for listening to Circular Planet. Circular Planet was researched, written, edited, and produced by Alicia Mazurkiewicz. This podcast is brought to you by Bethesda Green, a fantastic organization accelerating sustainable businesses. I'm an intern as part of their environmental leaders program that offers high school students the opportunity to learn about sustainability and environmental stewardship. You may find the resources I used for this podcast on the Bethesda Green website at www.bethesdagreen.org. I hope that you enjoy the podcast.